what I have found is that being able to talk about my authentic journey and who I really am may turn off some people, but I think it um, engenders, it, it builds loyalty and attracts other folks who want that in their life. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. This week, we have part two of Ryan Caldbeck and Chris Guest's conversation. If you missed part one, check out our previous podcast episode. Chris and Ryan also had a fireside chat last week at the Lean Startup Conference. Shout out to any listeners who attended the conference. We hope you enjoyed the event and learned firsthand from our speakers. Here's part two of their conversation. So now that you are in a place of circle up, the, you have the ability to create that culture and to um, create the processes to give support to people that want to be vulnerable and authentic for the benefit of the company and for themselves. What, what are the, some of the ways that you can do that? And is there anything you've already put in place that we could learn from? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what we do. I'm not sure if anyone can learn from it because um, I'm not sure. I think it's always so hard to say which tactics work and which ones don't. You know, but I, I had a uh, someone several years ago who was, you know, top or first 70 employee at Google talking to me about all the things that Google did in their first two or three years as if those are the things that worked. I was like, well, maybe those are the things that worked, or maybe Google just had one of the greatest product market fits in history, and you know, people could have done a lot of different things, and we could say that those, that's what works. So I'll tell you what we do, some of the things we do. <clears throat> um, so I, I try to, um, uh, there's kind of things, ways I show up, ways I encourage other people to show up, um, opportunities we give for people to, to have these conversations, and then um, some things related to pulse surveys and, and 360 reviews that I can mention. First, in terms of how I show up, I, I try to um, be, be vulnerable and talk about um, my whole self, talk about um, some of the challenges that we have. Um, I may go too far on that. In fact, I've gotten feedback on that from, their, from the team here. Like, hey, like, no one wonders if you're being transparent. Sometimes they might just need a little bit more raw raw um you know that's that's just it's a hard balance um and uh but every friday we have a lunch where um we have conversations and i try different points to identify well you know a different point of view right so hey this thing over here is working really well and i will jump in with that's great here's how it might might not work in the future or here are some things that we still need to figure out um, I try to do it in productive ways. I'm not sure I'm always successful. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, two, we try to encourage other folks to do something similar, but to do it in constructive ways. So we have three values on our wall um, here at Circle Up, uh, which everyone knows, which are you know, to be brave, be a solution, and to do it right. The middle one, be a solution, is, you know, I don't get a lot out of um, the vulnerability of someone standing up in front of the company and just saying, here's a list of problems that we have. I think there's ways to talk about the challenges that are typical to a startup um, that are constructive 
and also offering solutions, right? So we try to encourage people to offer solutions. You'll see in people's reviews twice a year that we talk about those values, specifically be a solution, how people have been able to do that. Identify problems and begin to discuss solutions, be able to create space for the solutions. Um, some other things that we do is we present the financials and the board decks unedited to the company. We present our uh, My360 reviews um, uh, to, the, to the company and to the board. Um, we, uh, we also do pulse surveys here at the company. We present those, including the toughest feedback that we get to the company. So the company knows where we are um, financially, um, in terms of KPIs, in terms of culture, uh, and what feedback we're receiving, and also then what feedback um, we're trying to react to, right? So when I share the feedback that I get to the rest of the company, um, I try to say, like, this is what I heard, and this is what I'm trying to work on. Um, I'll give you an example. I think every quarter for seven years, almost, someone in the Pulse survey has said we should have free gym memberships. We're not going to get free gym memberships. And so we just label that. We say, like, look, here's this feedback we've gotten. We're not working on that. We're working on these other things. Um, I think it helps people know that they were heard, even if we don't necessarily agree on everything. Um, so those are some of the ways we try to build that transparency. Yeah, and it's interesting, I guess, that one of the main benefits there is the the trust that hopefully becomes undoubted after a while. So no matter how good you are, no matter how good uh, you are with a reality distortion field, there are going to be times when your employees, their morale goes up and down and something a competitor or the market does could cause people to doubt and there's nothing you can do to cover that up. Yep. But if you've got that foundation of trust and you've always got that to, to build on, if you've got people sitting there wondering whether or not you're lying to them, then you've really got problems. So I can certainly get the, the importance of, of, of investing in that above everything else. I think so, but let's, let's, I'll present the, uh, the flip side of this argument. The flip yeah. side of this argument is not all of our um, competitors are doing that. Right? Mm -hmm. Not all of our competitors are, or, or other places, competitors, at least for talent, if not for the product. Um, some of them do try to live in a reality distortion field. And so how does that impact the morale of our team members when they're talking with competitors or talking with customers about the competitors and they get the sense that those other companies are crushing it because those other companies are saying they're crushing it, mm. right? It takes a particularly unique and self-secure person to take a step back and say, you know what, the grass is always greener, but they're, they're not crushing it. They just may not be willing to be as vulnerable and transparent um, as we are. Or maybe they are crushing it. Um, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. So that's the, that's the dynamic that's so hard to, to deal with here. You know, If we were based in the middle of nowhere and our customers had no other options and our teammates had no other options, um, I think being vulnerable would be a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. Those other companies could be successful because they have reality distortion field mm -hmm. or they could be successful despite of it, which right. is true of like whether or not you should have the Steve Jobs personality or whether or not your 20 months of growth are real because of something smart you did or something that you know, you're not really in control and you were lucky despite of doing things wrong. So exactly, it seems like, you know, maybe part of this is your own uh, and your co-founder's ability to separate the truth from the BS and, and know, yep. okay, what are we really going to bet our future on here? 
Yep, exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. So um, talk to me a little bit about how you've been able to create a support system for yourself personally in, in, as a CEO for some of those conversations that you feel maybe aren't right to have with the rest of your team. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a, a co-founder um, who I've known for um, you know 16 years or so who we trust each other tremendously and, and we both have um, a big belief in the importance of, of being authentic with each other um, and that trust equation that I talked about before. Um, my wife has also been an amazing support system um, throughout my journey um, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Um, in terms of the, the kind of tactical things though that I think other folks could replicate if they wanted to, um, kind of the things we, we talked about before, which is one, finding um, groups of CEOs who uh, have a similar goal, a goal to be vulnerable, have a goal to share their real story together. It may require NDAs, right? Um, Non-disclosure agreements. It, it may uh, require some important vetting. Um, YPO does a lot of vetting. Leaders in tech, like we've mentioned before, does a lot of vetting. Um, to make sure that the people that they let into that journey um, know what they're getting and it's, that they're able to participate in the way that contributes to the group. Um, it's hard to just pick a random set of CEOs, show up at a coffee shop and, and have those conversations. Um, they tend to be long. I mean, our, we meet for four hours once a month, no cell phones in a room with no distractions. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes facilitators are helpful to have those discussions. I, I think for people that are listening to this, being able to talk to their VCs to try and help create those groups or to join some of the ones that exist today, like YPO or Leaders in Tech, or um, perhaps even to start them themselves, which takes a lot of work, but I think it's possible. Um, I think another thing that I really believe a lot in is uh, management coaching and, and getting a great one. Um, I shopped around for a bit before I found um, mine and he is phenomenal. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. But it's, uh, it's, it's an hour every month that I spend um, that I kind of, 20 minutes beforehand, dread a little bit because um, I got to go across town to go to this meeting for an hour. And every time I leave, I think, gosh, that was a great use of time. That was phenomenal. Um, and if I may ask, um, have you tried therapy as well? Is that something yeah. that you'd recommend? Yeah, I have. I, 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 I'm a big fan of therapy. Um, so a huge fan. Um, so I think therapy is really valuable for mental health. Management coaching is, I think, a different and uh, also important uh, thing to do because the therapist um, often doesn't really give a lot of tactical thoughts on how to change the situation, right? So they may have helped me with my mental health throughout the pivot. The management coach is who I want to talk to about how to actually do that. I got to prepare for a conversation with the team. That, you know, this was several years ago where we announced some layoffs to the team. The therapist isn't going to help with that. The management coach, I think, does. Um, so I think that's that's an important component. Um, I, I think also 
you know, to be frank, attracting, putting this out into the world if it's something that you want. Uh, whatever the authentic you is, putting that out into the world, uh, it, whether it's Twitter or whether it's the interview process or whether it's when you're talking to VCs, I think is a really good way to attract companies, attract people, attract customers, investors to you that want that in their life. Mm. I, I was with a CEO the other day who met with a phenomenal um, VC and said to the VC, um, if you want to announce this in TechCrunch, if you want to blog about this, if you want to talk about us publicly and have us celebrate this round and hire a PR firm, we're not the right investor for you. That's not what we care about at all. Um, we're never going to do that. Um, or we're not the right company for you, rather. And um, it was one of 50 things that this CEO said to the investor as a way to demonstrate, this is who I am. Do you want to opt into this? I think that was a really cool idea. Um, and uh, I think sometimes CEOs and founders are afraid to be who they are for fear of alienating people. Mm. You know, how do you, hiring engineers is already so hard. How do I go out there and say that I actually don't really care about the San Jose Sharks? Because some, some engineer is going to find that to be offensive, right? Or whatever it is. Or what I have found is that being able to talk about my authentic journey and who I really am may turn off some people, but I think it um, engenders, it, it builds loyalty and attracts other folks who want that in their life. Yeah, that would make sense. I wonder if it's possible that this entire conversation also applies to the investors themselves, um, yeah. which I'm not and never have been, but I can imagine that they bear a lot of responsibility and stress from picking which are the right decisions to make and which are not and being accountable to other people for how they've spent their money and the returns that they're getting. I wonder if you've heard or if you would agree that VCs feel the same way, that they in some way feel lonely with the, the burdens of the decision and the stress of the journey as well. Yeah, it, it's funny. After I, um, after I did that tweet storm on the pivot, I had a lot of VCs reach out to me and talk to me about their journey. Um, some from some of the best firms, the best firms in the, in the world, and talk about their loneliness about their inability to be as vulnerable as they would like and to be as authentic as they would like. And they talked about yeah, what you just said, like I lost a deal or I invested into a company that's not doing well and I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. Or, uh, you know, what if we can't raise our next rent or next fund, whatever it was. That is also, I think, a, you know, lonely job. It tends to be a lone wolf job, to be frank. Um, I... I had a conversation last week um, with a VC that I've known for literally 20 years. And um, last week for, we had a 15 minute long conversation was the single best conversation I've ever had with any VC in my life. And we started, we, we had a call about, uh, it was about work, but he just started by talking about um, his kids and his marriage. and he went into such amazing, real, authentic detail, talking about the struggles that he's had with his family and his, and his wife and the different points in his career. He felt really insecure and 
it was amazing. It was absolutely, maybe it was the contrast with other conversations I often have professionally with VCs. Maybe it was because um, it was just so unexpected and it was just so raw, but it was amazing. And I felt so much closer to him after those 15 minutes. I wanted to work even harder for him. I wanted him to be on my team even more. Um, and it built, it built this relationship that even after 20 years, I, I, I didn't have with him. Um, it was, it was a really, really powerful, powerful experience. So look, I understand why, uh, it's hard for them to do it. Um, I mean, another reason that we haven't talked about and why it's hard for VCs to be vulnerable is it's a hell of a job. It paid a lot of money and you know, it's a bit like the Hollywood actor complaining about how their life's hard, right? It's can't really do that too much publicly without getting roasted. Um, you know. And I, I get it. I think that there are ways to do it at the very least privately with the companies you work with. Um, you know, I don't think it's complaining about the first class seat that you took cross country, but I think it's the true insecurities, the true feelings that you have, um, I think can be done in a way that helps build the relationship. Uh, going back to that trust equation by exposing the authenticity um, and by building that authenticity. Yeah, and it's interesting that whilst um, whilst Silicon Valley does have a certain bravado to it, and, and I think especially within the VC community, that's also considered to be true. Um, at the same time, this is also California we're talking about here. And mm -hmm. I know, you know, I come from England where the notion of therapy is someone telling you, pull yourself together, man. And, and that's about the yeah. size of it. And, and I know friends and family that have, you know, really suffered from that sort of attitude. Uh, I'd, I'd never even heard somebody casually mention their therapist until I moved to California. And yeah. so, you know, I wonder as, you know, as, as difficult as a, a topic of this, this is to bring up here in San Francisco, I, I can only imagine that it's many, it's much more difficult for, for many different professionals in all walks of life all across the globe. There's a, I don't know, what is that expression? Like a, a strength is a weakness overplayed or maybe it's the reverse. I don't know. There's, often a connection between strength and, and weakness. San Francisco especially is a city, I think that takes so much pride in um, being real and uh, whether it's like what they eat or uh, uh, you know, trying to expose social injustices or whatever, yet the culture around tech, which is by far the biggest industry in the city, um, I don't think celebrates that authenticity. Um, well, maybe it does. The, I think it, people love it in the construct of a hero's journey when you're looking back. Yeah. Were. Yeah. yeah. They, everyone loves that story, but just not in real time. I mean, right. if, if you are Ed Catmull and you're writing about how Pixar nearly went to the wall five times before you finally became the Pixar that everyone knows, mm -hmm. or if you're Ben Horowitz or Phil Knight that wrote a great book about the hard times. Yep. In a way, you're entitled to do that if you've already made it and your strength and, and success isn't in, in any doubt. But maybe nobody wants to know at the time, apart yeah. from the people maybe that really do matter the most. Maybe, maybe that's a, a defining factor of uh, who do you spend the most time with and, and who do you bring into your company and work the closest with is, are they there for you in real time as the story is unfolding rather than in the glory days at the end of it? So funny you mentioned that about um, Ben and the hard thing about hard things. Um, 
it's one of my favorite books because it's it's fairly real um and i really appreciate that he wrote it and now i wish the founder of airbnb would write one mm. and then i wish that the next great series c company would write one next you know move earlier and earlier in the journey before it's obvious that that story has been written i don't think that's realistic by the way i just i get i get excited to read about it yeah real time um but i i think that's i think that's asking a lot of someone to to do that um look i mean let's call a spade a spade i talked about it two and a half years after we went through it since we went through it we raised uh you know a really big round from two phenomenal investors and took me two and a half years to feel comfortable talking about this. Um, by the way, we're, we're clearly not at the stage where everything's on rails right now, but it feels a lot more um, stable and, and uh, promising and exciting than it did two and a half years ago, which is part of what gave me that, that confidence. Yeah. So describe what circle is circle up is today and what, the result of the pivot was in terms of where you went from until the business that you have now. Yeah. So um, circle up is an investment platform powered by technology. And when I was saying before that this technology finds and evaluates uh, uh, consumer companies, we've been building that technology for five, six years. And what we were discovering is that when we would find companies with this technology and then evaluate them more efficiently than humans could, the problem was that we would put the company that we found through this technology in front of investors. And then investors always think that they're smarter than the technology. So we were talking about Halo Top before, which is you know, one of the most successful consumer companies in the last decade. We can find that Halo Top, the technology can have a lot of conviction and it did in Halo Top. And then we put that company in front of investors when we had the marketplace and the investors would taste the ice cream and they'd say, well, it doesn't taste as good as I want it to. Or they'd say, well, the founders don't have prior relevant experience. Or they'd always find something about the business. And so it kind of felt like we were selling dollars for 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And when I went through that exercise of identifying the strengths and weaknesses with, with my co-founder, we believed that the technology, Helio, that goes out and finds and evaluates companies, that was a strength of ours. So we said, okay, well, how else can we monetize this technology? How can we show that this thing works? And we came to... Let's eat our own dog food. Let's raise funds that invest into these companies that we have so much conviction in and they just demonstrate over time, this, is, this works. So that's what we do. Gotcha. And it seems like then that is really is a proper classic pivot in the definition that would be most familiar to, to fans of the lean startup. So, um, you know, what Eric wrote in his book originally was that a pivot is a change in strategy without a change in vision. And yeah. what you've described there, that you still had the vision of, of helping surface these investment opportunities in the consumer space that might otherwise be overlooked. And through that, you're serving both investors and you're serving those companies. You had a strategy which was to do that via a marketplace. Yep. And then you pivoted to a different strategy, but in service of the same vision. And what's interesting that that's another difference between most of the folklore that you read about as it relates to pivots. I mean, sorry to pick on Slack again, then if you are passionate about the computer game industry that you're working in to then pivot to making a communications tool, it's kind of hard to argue that that's in service of the same vision. Now, 
maybe Mr. Butterfield doesn't particularly care what I have to say there. He's done this incredibly well for himself. Um, but I, I wonder um, how that relates to your company culture and yeah. what you retain and what you lose and gain when you have to make that pivot. Yeah, so I, I agree with the distinction. Um, our mission um, and vision have, have not changed. So the, the mission here at CircleUp is um, to help entrepreneurs to thrive by giving them the capital and resources that they need. And you can see that you could have a marketplace fit in with that. You could also have these fund structures and Helio fit in with that, that mission. Um, and uh, we, we were able to retain some amazing talent because they still believed in the overriding mission vision, even if the strategy changed um, and the tactics to go after that changed from the marketplace to um, what is today this investment platform powered by technology. Um, I think it also, th there was also some, some pain. And, and so the pain was, uh, you know, we had 45 people when we pivoted the business. And, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like changing, um, when you pivot a business and it's a series seed company and there's five people, that's one thing. When it's 45 people and you're five years into the business, and, and you're trying to pivot, there's a lot of institutional baggage that comes with it. So while I was excited we were able to keep amazing talent, there's processes and cultural things and, and momentum related to your OKRs last quarter and what KPIs you pay attention to and all that stuff that brings some pain in terms of changing it. Um, and so to be frank, there are times when I think, gosh, would we have been better off to have a completely different mission and a completely different vision because it would have made that changeover so much more easy, so much easier because you could just basically start from scratch. I come to the conclusion, the answer is no, um, because the team we had, uh, we were able to retain was fantastic and I'm still inspired by the mission and the vision, um, but it doesn't come without some of that pain, that legacy baggage. Gotcha. And, and pivot is a word that has special meaning in the lean startup um, philosophy. I wonder, were you, throughout this journey, were you familiar with the lean startup, the, the methodology, the book and the community around it? Or, or is it something that, that you've, you've come to later? It was, uh, no, we, we, I read the book um, in the first six months. Um, and it was actually required reading, to be candid with you, for the first three or four years of our business, meaning we bought a book for everyone that, that joined the company. Fantastic. And, and was that help for you, helpful for you in the journey? And, and did that play any role in this, this particular pivot decision that you needed to make? Um, it did definitely helpful throughout the journey. Um, there are times when it's been more helpful than others. So, you know, there's the concept of developing MVPs related to, it might be the product, it might be culture, it might be a lot of different things, processes, that has been extremely valuable. In fact, my last meeting before this podcast was about that concept, was about can we actually do an MVP here instead of X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, Helio, as I mentioned, um, collection of algorithms and data sets. Uh, today, we have no inter interface for the data. Um, we use Postgres, we use Metabase, other SQL clients, um, but there's no interface. 
we're five and a half years in to using Helio. I assure you, we've gotten a lot of requests for an interface. Uh, and the reason we don't um, is because Helio has been progressing at such a rate for, for several years in a row that when we have tried at times to build an interface, Helio's capabilities kind of leapfrog it by the time that interface is done. So we've, um, we have failed fast in two or three attempts um, to do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, those MVPs have worked. I'm so glad that we did those MVPs kind of and, and failed fast on that rather than some folks have advocated building a much more robust um, interface for that. Uh, by the way, we will build an interface over the next 12 months, but today we don't have one. Um, and there's some other examples um, of, of kind of how we've been able to use MVP examples. Um, when we had a marketplace, it was basically a contract that companies had to sign with us to use the marketplace, a bit like if you go onto Funding Circle or Lending Club, you have to sign some documents. Um, and uh, we would test different parts of an engagement letter constantly. On a weekly basis, we'd A-B test things all the time and launch new ideas just really quickly. Um, and that was that was valuable um, for us. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's what I would say. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so I wonder if there's anything else that uh, you've come to believe about Lean Startup through your experience with it that maybe some other people in that are also practicing Lean Startup might disagree with you on? I I sometimes worry. Um, that some practitioners have, it's, this is an interesting question because of what we just talked about. I sometimes worry that some practitioners have taken the you know, concept of embracing the pivot and the MVP approach too much to heart. Um, I think candidly in Silicon Valley, um, more entrepreneurs would benefit today from pushing through some pain a little bit on, on some, some key ideas. Um, I have, met with a number of CEOs where I got, in fact, I did one today, where they were saying, you know what, I'm just gonna bail on this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change it this way or pivot it this way or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, like, it seems early. What, what about these 10 things that you could do? Um, so let's be clear, I, I think that there are some beautiful things about um, a pivot, about embracing a pivot and, and MVP. I also think sometimes there are entrepreneurs that have taken that too much to heart and some persistence um, and pushing through difficult times would, would also be helpful. And to be frank with you, I'm not sure what the balance is, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, cause there could be some occasions where you're getting a negative result, but maybe you do feel in your bones that it's something that you should persevere with. Um, That's right. Not giving yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, you think about some of the early days with, um, take Airbnb, you know, where they're selling cereal to pay for you know, that the famous story. They made cereal to pay for um, the, the, the operations for a little bit. Um, it was not completely obvious that the thing worked um, early on. And that would have been an easy time to pivot away from that. Um, and there's a, a lot of other examples, but I, I do wonder if sometimes um, we have embraced that concept almost too much. Yeah. Difficult to separate 
it can't be done from I can't do it or we can't do it or there's a it takes more time. Yeah. yeah. Or, or maybe it just takes more time. We got to grind it out for a little bit longer, you know, and yeah. it's really difficult to know what the answer is there. Yeah. Gotcha. So thinking back on this entire journey through the pivot and through the story that you've told, is there any final advice that you'd give to any other person or team that was in a similar position? Ask for help. Mm -hmm. Open up. Try and find, um, try and find ways to pull other people onto your journey, whether that's a management coach, your board, uh, external peers, um, talk. Um, journaling, I think helps to get your voice out, even just to yourself helps to kind of clarify thinking. Um, I've been meditating transcendental meditation for years. I think that helps to clarify thinking, but that journey is one where it feels like your, your head is constantly spinning and just gets worse and worse and worse. Find ways, finding ways to slow that down exercising, eating right, trying to turn off the computer at night, helps your mind slow down, talking to these other people, help to clarify thinking, I think are all tactics that um, will lead people to have a healthier journey going through a pivot than perhaps I did. One thing I've heard from friends that are entrepreneurs is that a lot of investors really like their founders to be incredibly highly leveraged. And they talk about wanting to ensure that the founder has skin in the game, um, you know, and carries almost as much risk as possible on their own personal shoulders through their journey, just to feel like the, the founders never let off the hook and to have no option but, su- but survive. And I wonder how you feel about that. I mean, for me, that feels incredibly counterproductive. I know that it, there's a certain point of stress, which is good. And there's a certain point where I can't think straight. <laughs> yep. 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 And, and I wonder if you think, you know, is this still true that there's that, that, that investors are expecting entrepreneurs to be too highly leveraged or is it a good thing, a bad thing? Or what are your thoughts? I think, yeah. So I think it's true that investors, most investors expect that. Um, I think it's counterproductive. So, uh, uh, you know, first of all, to be clear, I have, I don't know what the number is, but 95, 97% of my net worth in circle up. Um, so I am in that camp of being what I would say is too highly leveraged. And I think it adds unneeded stress. This concept that, um, and I hear it sometimes come up from investors when they're talking to me about uh, one of their portfolio company CEOs taking secondary or something like that. Well, what if he takes out, or if he or she takes out a couple million bucks, they're going to be disincentivized to do something. I just think that that's, I think that's wrong. Like, unless you think that your CEO just does not value their time or reputation at all, why are they spending the time to do this and just are they mailing it in? They're still the CEO, right? And so then, then are you saying that they're going to leave early because they, you know, help to diversify a little bit away from, from the business? Um, I, I really struggle to believe that that's right. Um, I think that the mental health benefits that come from not being super highly leveraged to that one company far outweigh the loyalty or whatever it may engender. In fact, I think it's actually counterproductive. I, the CEOs that I've seen that have been able to take secondary and not be as leveraged to a company are able to stay in their seats longer, are able to be more effective, are able to get sleep at night, which makes them more effective the next day. Um, there's no good CEO or good founder that is thinking about the business more because they've got 95% of their 
net worth tied to that business than they do if they've got 70%. That, I think that's a complete, I think that that quote or that concept comes from VCs that have never been an operator before. When you're the founder, you're the CEO of the business, you think about the thing constantly, constantly. And that doesn't change if, you, if you're levered or not to that business. Yeah. And at a certain point, you either believe in the founder or you don't. And this is That's the right. type of person you want to work with. And which also brings us on to, you know, employees choosing the founder and choosing the startup. And my final question is, are you hiring? If, if people like your story, like your, your candor and, and, and the way you approach things, uh, are you looking to hire more people at Circle Up? We are. We've got a number of roles open um, on our credit team related to ops, underwriting, business development, on our capital markets team, on our data engineering and data science teams. Um, we're hiring a lot of folks. We have a jobs page, um, circleup.com slash jobs. We often uh, tweet about it um, from at circleup or, or I may um, at uh, Ryan underscore Caldbeck. Um, so we are hiring and uh, uh, are hungry to find folks um, that uh, that are excited about our mission to help entrepreneurs to thrive. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Ryan, so much for your time and your willingness to share both the under the hood insight into the business and also your personal story along the way as well. Thank you to everyone else for listening. I hope you feel compared to share and discuss this story. Um, you can do so with us at Lean Startup on most channels or myself at Gesto, G-U-E-S-T-O. We hope to see you and discuss with you online and of course, see you again in the next episode of the Lean Startup Podcast. Till then, take care. Bye-bye. Big thank you to Ryan for joining us as a podcast guest and as a speaker at the conference. We also have a blog post to go along with this episode, so you can find that at leanstartup.co forward slash blog. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you enjoy listening on. This really helps others discover the stories we're sharing. Thanks for listening.